And the story in the Bible we're going to look at today is also a story about new beginnings. Uh, we are, for those of you who've been around the last few weeks, you'll know about this. If you're new, we're doing a series called A House for My Name, based on a book by someone called Peter Lightheart. We're looking at the whole of the Old Testament uh, between starting last September through to July this year. And the story we've looked at so far before Christmas, we looked at the story of creation, about how God created the world and about how the Bible uses the imagery of a house, a three-story house of uh, God made the seas and the earth and the skies and meant that to be filled with people and his presence and for God and his people to dwell together. God is building this house. And we then looked at the story of the Exodus, about how God rescued his people Israel out of slavery in Egypt and how that is a picture for us in terms of what Jesus does for us and bringing us into new life. And in the next five weeks, the next section of this story, we're planning to look at the story of what happens after the Exodus as the people of Israel are in the wilderness, meet with God at a place called Sinai, and the story goes through to the people entering the land and we get up to the story of Samuel, the great prophet and leader of Israel in a place called Shiloh. So this is the story from Sinai to Shiloh over the next five weeks, and today we're in the wilderness, and to start that story, actually, we need to go back to the very first story again, to the story of Genesis, to the story of Adam and Eve. Always go back to the beginning with these stories. And uh, think about Adam, the first man, the, the first person that God created and breathed life into. And Adam stands as, as, a, as, a, as a type, as a representative of all of humanity. In Adam, we see what is good about the human race. So Adam was made in God's image and made to steward the earth and made to be creative and to flourish. And we human beings, we are like that. We have been made in the image of God. We're made to steward the earth. We're made to be creative and to flourish. But we also see in Adam what was bad, that Adam sinned, Adam rebelled against God, Adam spoiled the world. And that story of Adam repeats again and again, repeats throughout human history, repeats in the story of the people of Israel, repeats in our own lives. This is the human problem, that we were made to know God, to be like God, to image God, and yet again and again we behave as Adam did and mess things up. And so where we are today in the story today is that once again God is building his house He's leading his people Israel into the promised land. That promised land is going to be like this new house for them, which is going to be filled with God's people. But the problem is that on the way to the promised land, God's people act more like Adam and Eve than the people of God. And this story is told in the book of Numbers. So this morning we're going to be looking at the book of Numbers, the story of the wilderness. Now, it would actually help you to have a Bible in front of you this morning, so if you wanted to grab a physical Bible, that would be terrific. We're on page 133, I think it is, where Numbers starts in these Bibles. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, fourth book in the Bible. Now, if you are reading through the Bible and you get to Numbers, Numbers is one of those books that when you start it, to be honest, can seem quite boring because it begins with lists. So we get to Numbers chapter 1, and there's a list. There's a list of men who were appointed to help Moses to lead the people from each of the tribes. And then we get into this list of tribes. The tribes are counted, and you get this long list from the descendants of Reuben, the firstborn son of Israel. All the men 20 years old or more who were able to serve in the army were listed by name. And then from the descendants of Simeon, and from the descendants of Gad, and then you turn over to chapter 2, and it's 
Again, more lists about how the camp of God is organized, how the people are camped on the east towards the sunrise. This tribe is to be there, and on the south will be these divisions, and on the west will be those divisions. And then you turn to chapter 3, and you get a list about the different priests and who they are and what they're to do and how they're to be organized. And it can be quite hard going just reading through these lists of uh, people with strange names in a time very different from ours. But we need to see what is being represented here in these lists and descriptions of God's people camped together out in the wilderness. This is what Peter Lightheart has to say about this. What these chapters tell us is how God is organizing his people at Sinai. One part of this is the way that Israel camps around the tabernacle, around God's tent. At the end of the book of Exodus, Yahweh comes down in his glory cloud, the same glory cloud that hovers over the original creation. When God made the world, his presence, his spirit was hovering over the waters, Genesis tells us. And when the people of Israel build this tent, this tabernacle, God's presence, the glory cloud, comes down and rests on it in the same way. With God ruling as king in their midst, Israel is called together, and each tribe is told where it should camp. Aaron and his sons, the priests, along with the Levites, camp closest to the tabernacle, and the tribes camp in groups of three further from the Lord's tent. Then the leaders of each tribe appear before the Lord to bring him gifts. The house of Israel is camped around the house of their king. Now, in this, and... uh, There should be a picture here of a representation of what the camp looked like, the different tribes gathered around the tabernacle. What we're getting here is a picture of what the world, what the house should look like, how it should be. That this is meant to represent order and security with God at the center of things. And this represents God's people living in the security and the blessing and the joy of the presence of God. God is at the center of the house and his people are gathered around him and there's this security and there's this blessing and joy. And that is what human beings long for even when they don't realize it. What we are looking for is security and blessing and joy. And all the things that human beings pursue are actually seeking after those things. We want that in our lives. We want a sense of favor, of blessing in our lives. We want to know joy. We want to know happiness. We want to have a sense of security. And that's what this represents. God's people gathered around God, his presence there in the midst. Now, the imagery is of a house, the house of God, but another image the Bible uses is that of a garden. The story starts in a garden. God places Adam and Eve in the garden of Eden. That's the house. It's a garden house in which they dwell. And the book of Numbers is also about getting to a garden. Numbers, we call it the book of Numbers because of all the lists of numbers. Uh, In the Hebrew Bible, uh, the book of Numbers actually is titled In the Wilderness, in the wilderness, because it describes the wanderings of the people of Israel in the wilderness. But they're not meant to stay in the wilderness. They're meant to come into the promised land, which is itself described in terms of a house, but also of a garden, of a garden house. It's a, it's a returning to Eden, in a sense. That Adam and Eve were banished from Eden, the perfect garden. And now God's people are being led into the promised land, which is again a perfect garden. God says, I'm going to lead you into a land which flows with milk and honey. There's this garden where they're going to live with God in security and joy and blessing, a return to Eden. Again, that's 
That's what human beings are looking for. That's what we want. That's what we're pursuing. We, we want that kind of security, that kind of blessing, that kind of beauty, that kind of provision, that kind of overflow, which God promised for his people in the land to which he was taking them. And we see something more of this garden imagery in the way that the people of Israel themselves were very fruitful. They'd been slaves in Egypt and Pharaoh, king of Egypt, had tried to destroy them. But when they come out of Egypt and they're here in the wilderness, God tells Moses to number the fighting men. Every man over the age of 20 who's able to serve in the army, he says to count. That's the first list we get in the book of Numbers. And when Moses does that, there are 600,000 men in that category of over 20 and able to carry a sword. And so altogether, including the women and the children and everybody else, there was probably over 2 million people who left Egypt uh, under God's leading, heading towards the promised land. Pharaoh had tried to destroy this people, but there were millions who left. And God's people are called to prosper, to be fruitful, to, to fill the land, to fill the garden, to, to fill the house. And that's what we're getting a picture of here in the book of Numbers. And so the first 10 chapters of the book of Numbers are about how the people of Israel are organized in this camp, how they are a vast company gathered around God's house. They're led by the glory of the Lord and they're headed to the promised land, the garden of God. And so we get to the end of that section of the book of Numbers. We get to Numbers chapter 9 and this is what it says. On the day the tabernacle, the tent of the covenant law was set up, the cloud, the presence of God covered it. From evening till morning, the cloud above the tabernacle looked like fire. That is how it continued to be. The cloud covered it, and at night it looked like fire. Whenever the cloud lifted from above the tent, the Israelites set out. Whenever the cloud settled, the Israelites set up camp. And then a few verses down in Numbers 10, it says, Whenever the ark set out, Moses said, Rise up, Lord, may your enemies be scattered, may your foes flee before you. Whenever it came to rest, he said, Return, Lord to the countless thousands of Israel. And so we get to this point of the story, Numbers 10, and we think everything should go swimmingly. This is God's people with God's plan, God's presence, and God's man. They are called by God. They belong to him. There's a plan heading to the promised land. God's presence is with them. The glory of God is physically manifest, hovering over the tabernacle, over the tent. And they've got Moses, who is this great leader, who is hearing from God and leading them in the way they should go. You think everything's going to go swimmingly. It's all going to be straightforward and simple. They should go marching straight into the promised land. But of course, that's not what happens. Instead, they enter into a cycle of Adam-like rebellion. And so immediately after, we're told about how Moses proclaims this blessing of God being with his people in Numbers 10. Next verse, Numbers 11, verse 1, it says this. Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. And when he heard them, his anger was aroused. Then fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. When the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord and the fire died down. So that place was called Tabera, which means burning. 
because fire from the Lord had burned among them. The people repeat the sin of Israel. Repeat the sin of, repeat the sin of Adam. They, 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 they don't see how blessed they are. They want something else. And, and that is the human problem. It's so easy for us to do this. It's so easy always to be reaching for the thing that you don't have. That was Adam's problem in the garden. He reached, he'd been given everything apart from one thing, and the thing he wanted to reach for was the one thing he hadn't been given. And that is so easy for us to do. However secure and blessed we might be, the temptation, the human temptation is always to want to reach for the thing which you're not meant to reach for. That's what we all do. Kids do it. And we still do it as adults. We do it in more subtle and sly ways, but we do it just like kids do. We always reach for the thing which actually we shouldn't be reaching for. That is Adam's problem. It's our problem. It's the human problem. And I think one of the things which we need to kind of consciously, intentionally try and train ourselves in is to make it our ambition to celebrate God's blessings. This was a people who had been led out of slavery and they were now camped around the presence of God and God's presence was literally physically, tangibly visible amongst them and yet they were complaining about their hardships. And I'm sure there were hardships because they were having to adjust to a new way of life, having to navigate their way through the wilderness. I'm sure it wasn't all easy, but they were so blessed. God had delivered them from slavery. He'd promised them a beautiful land to which they were headed. His presence was with them. They were living in a place of security and blessing and joy. And yet, they were reaching for what they didn't have and complaining against God. And we do have to, speaking to myself as much as anybody here, we have to consciously, I have to consciously cultivate the decision to thank God, to focus, to not just uh, uh, try to count your blessings thing but recognizing what we have been given in Christ and celebrate that rather than always reaching for the thing which actually I shouldn't have. When Adam rebelled against God, there are consequences. And we see the same thing here. And when we see God acting in judgment, it's always a case of you get what you ask for. God's judgments are always a kind of a you get what you ask for. Adam reach for knowledge which he wasn't entitled for and the Lord kind of says to him well you can have it you can have it you can have the knowledge but you can have the whole world but that's going to include the thorns and the thistles if you're going to reach for this that means the whole deal it means getting understanding you didn't previously have but it also means you're going to have to fight thorns and thistles in your life and for this people they complain about their hardships they think life is hard and it's like, like the Lord says okay well you think life's hard, you're going to see what hardship is really like. The judgment always matches the complaint, the sin. And despite the Lord's blessings and despite his warnings, this people keep disobeying and they keep rebelling. And it gets to a place where they say that they wish they had stayed in Egypt. They wish they had remained slaves in Egypt rather than being led by God towards the inheritance he has promised for them. And, and even Aaron and Miriam, Moses' brother and sister, join in the complaining and the disobeying and suffer the consequences. And this all culminates in Numbers chapter 13. We get to the story about the people come to the border of the promised lands. And a representative from each of the 12 tribes is chosen to go and explore this land. And 12 of them go in and they see that this is a good 
land. It is a land flowing with milk and honey. And then they come back and report to the people. And of the 12, only two, only Caleb and Joshua, believe that they can enter the land and take it. And the, the other 10 spies, they, they speak fear rather than faith to the people. And the people again rebel. And rather than obeying God and entering the land he's promised to them, they say, we're not going to go in. We can't go in. And this story actually reaches back to an earlier story. And again, in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 14, there's a story about Abraham. And uh, Abraham's nephew, Lot, is taken captive by a king called Kedileamor. And uh, Abraham has 318 men in his household. And Abraham and his 318 men go to battle against Kedileamor, and they defeat that king, and they rescue Lot, Abraham's nephew. And the action of that battle uh, centers around a place called Kadesh. Now, that is the same place that Israel is camped in when the spies go to the land. There should be a, a, a map of uh, where Kadesh is, Kadesh Barnea. So Abraham, with his 318 men, defeats this king, rescues Lot. Abraham conquers the land. Now, hundreds of years later, Abraham's descendants, two million of them, are camped at Kadesh. The Lord is saying, go into the land. They send out 12 men to explore it and check it out. They come back, and 10 of them persuade the people. They can't go and take it. 318 men had conquered the land. Now there are 600,000 fighting men, and they're too afraid to enter the land. Abraham had faith. His descendants have fear. And once again, the Lord says to them, well, okay, you're going to get what you want. You're going to get what you want. You won't enter the land. Instead, you're going to die in the wilderness. And all that generation perish in the wilderness. They do not enter the promised land. We see there's an incredible immaturity about the people of Israel at this time. They, they get everything they want, but when they get it, they don't want it. And it's a kind of a childlike approach. They're immature in their faith. And they suffer the consequences, and they don't receive the land that God had promised them. Now, uh, 10 years or nine and a half years ago, back in 2012, we were teaching through the letter to the Hebrews in the New Testament. And in Hebrews chapter 3, Hebrews chapter 3 tells the story of the rebellion in the wilderness. It tells the story of numbers. And in Hebrews 3, it describes that what happened to the people of Israel there as, as a warning to us. It says these things happened as a warning to us. And I titled that message, The Deadly Danger of Unbelief. And it's um, quite unusual because I don't really remember what I've preached. Uh, if you ask me what I preached two months ago, I'd struggle to remember as much as you remember to remind me what I'd preached. I just, it just sermons come and go, don't they? But I, the one I preached 10 years ago on The Deadly Danger of Unbelief is one that has stuck in my mind. And uh, I think at that time it felt like we needed a pointed reminder from God not to miss what God was calling us to. And as we were teaching through that letter to the Hebrews, we got to chapter 3 and those warnings, it really felt like a, like a prophetic moment at which God wanted us to wake up and not to miss the things that he was calling us to in the way that the people had missed their calling in the wilderness as described in the book of Numbers. 
And the question is, why did the people there, why in this story, Numbers 13, 14, why do they rebel? And uh, the thing I explored in that, in that message from Hebrews 10 years ago was that there's a sense in which there was a, a rational caution these people experienced, that the reality was there were some obstacles that entering into the promised land meant facing some fights. Yes, it's an amazing, beautiful place, but those who explored it came back and they say the land we explored devours those living in it, all the people we saw there of great size. We were like grasshoppers in their eyes. And because those who explored the land saw the challenges, there was a kind of a caution, which you might say is rational because it looked like it was going to be hard work to enter into the promised land. But that rational caution actually was a display of lack of faith, which led to fear, which led to hardening of hearts, which led to rebellion against God. And in the end, it was their unbelief which kept them from getting into the land, not the practical obstacles. The practical obstacles actually weren't obstacles. In God, they had the power to overcome them. The obstacle was their lack of faith, their unbelief, their hardness of heart. And this can happen in churches. In church life, you can have the appearance of worship and of righteousness, but no real obedience, no real action. And that Sunday, 28th of October, 2012, we put a kind of a mark in the sand. And one of the things which... Uh, I, I spoke about that Sunday was something which God had been stirring in my heart, which was that we ought to start another congregation. At that time, we were just meeting at Alder Road and felt this kind of prophetic prompt, let's, let's, let's try, let's start another congregation. And so six months after that, April 2013, 25 of us started to meet in a fish and chip shop, Harley's down on Paul Key. And then a bit like the Israelites wandering through the wilderness, we wandered along Paul Key from Harley's to Rancho Steakhouse to the Thistle Hotel to the URC Church in Skinner Street. And then finally God provided this building for us. And here we are. Ten years on, here we are. Now, we would never, we wouldn't be here today if in 2012 we had been led by rational caution. Actually, taking 25 people and starting something in Harley's Fish and Chip Shop didn't look particularly rational, necessarily. But we responded to the kind of prophetic prompt of what the Lord was doing amongst us. And if we hadn't done that, we wouldn't be here. And just in terms of the practicalities of the stuff we're doing at the moment, if we didn't have this building while we're doing our building project at Alder Road, I'm not sure what we would do. Because there are no other facilities for churches to use. So many of my friends in churches who have to rent property since the pandemic just haven't been able to get back into buildings. Rentals have shut down. You can't get into schools anymore. You can't get into theatres anymore. What would we have done? Who knows? But because we didn't succumb to rational caution, because we moved forward in faith 10 years ago, we're now where we are, moving forward in faith again. I know there were also some more personal responses people made to that message in terms of bold steps they took in their own lives rather than being rationally cautious, taking steps of faith. Now, that was 10 years ago. What are the marks in the sand for us today? What are the new adventures that we are being called to today? 
In Numbers 14, the people miss it. That whole generation dies in the wilderness. But this is a story of new beginnings. You get to Numbers 26, and Moses again counts the men aged 20 and over who are able to carry a sword. And again, there are 600,000 men. The first 600,000 have died. A new 600,000 have arisen. There's been a new start. There's been resurrection. And ironically, that resurrection actually starts with the death of Aaron. And in Numbers 20, we read about how the Lord speaks to Aaron and says, he's not going to enter the promised land because of his rebellion. And he dies, and the mantle of high priest is passed to his son, Eleazar. And that's a big moment in Israel's history because Aaron the priest has been so central to their story up to this point. He'd been the one who'd gone with his brother Moses to speak to Pharaoh, and he's been the one anointed to lead the people in their worship. But there's another significance to what happens with Aaron. Right at the end of the book of Numbers, the Lord gives the people more instructions about how they're to live in the land once they occupy it. And part of that is what to do if somebody kills somebody else. If somebody murders somebody, then that murder has to be avenged. Blood can only be paid for by blood. But the Lord in his mercy puts a system in place to kind of bypass that vengeful uh, results. And he instructs the priest to form what is called cities of refuge. And this is what it says in Numbers 35. If without enmity someone suddenly pushes another or throws something at them unintentionally or without seeing them drops them a stone heavy enough to kill them and they die, then since that other person was not an enemy and no harm was intended, the assembly must judge between the accused and the avenger of blood according to these regulations. The assembly must protect the one accused of murder from the avenger of blood and send the accused back to the city of refuge to which they fled. The accused must stay there until the death of the high priest who was anointed with holy oil. The death of the high priest means atonement and forgiveness and restoration. If you kill somebody unintentionally, an accident happens, then the avenger of blood had a right to shed your blood. But the Lord says, no, rather than vengeance, there's going to be mercy. You can go to the city of refuge. But you have, to, <clears throat> you have to stay in the city of refuge. If you leave the city of refuge, the avenger of blood might find you and kill you. You have to stay in the city of refuge. That's where you're safe until the high priest dies. And when the high priest dies, you are set free. And the avenger of blood has no claim over you. Now, when Aaron dies... We see that atonement and forgiveness and restoration. The people have rebelled against God in the wilderness. They've refused to follow him. Aaron dies, and that is the point at which the people are then released to enter into the promised land. Now, of course, that story, which might seem a bit strange to us, points to the greatest story. The death of Aaron and the release of the people to enter the promised land points to the great high priest, Jesus. That's what Peter Lightheart says. Aaron is not a perfect high priest, but his death points ahead to the death of another priest, Jesus, whose death and resurrection means the death and resurrection of Israel. Because of the death of Jesus, we may move out of the wilderness and into the land of our inheritance. Because of the death of Jesus, 
we can step into our inheritance. That means that if you have never put your trust in Jesus, you can do that this morning. You can enter into the security and the blessing and the joy of God. It means that for those of us who do, do know Christ already, there are new adventures for us to enter into this year. There are aspects of our inheritance to collect on this year. 2022, there are aspects of the inheritance we have in God which we are to collect on. We are God's people who live in the security and the blessing and the joy of God's presence, and we are to enter more into that. And this story, the story told in Numbers, is always relevant because we are children of Adam. Like Adam, like the people of Israel, our temptation always is to reach for the thing which we shouldn't be reaching for and to not see the blessings which God has already given us. We're children of Adam, but in Christ, things change. In Christ, we are brought out of the wilderness and enter the land of our inheritance. In Christ, we are set free from our old way of life, from our sin. We are brought out of slavery. We are brought out of Egypt. We are brought into life. We are brought into security. We are brought into blessing. We are brought into joy. And so in 2022, let's keep walking in that way. Let's walk in the way of Christ, not in the way of Adam. Let's walk in the securities and the blessings and the joys we have in God. Let's encourage one another in those things and let's press into new adventures, whatever they may be. Things personally for us, things corporately for us. Let's enter the adventure of faith that God has called us to that we might receive more of our inheritance in Christ Jesus. I'd like us to uh, pray together before we come to worship. I've uh, just uh, written down a prayer I'd like us to say together. We could stand and Let's make this our commitment to Jesus at the start of this year. Let's pray. King Jesus, we know we are like our father Adam. We know the temptations of wrong desires and fear and disobedience. But we know your greater power is at work in us. For the spirit God gave us does not make us timid but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. Thank you, we are your people, the house you are building. Help us to always remember who we are because of who you are. We choose to follow you in new adventures of faith, obedient to your call. This day we put our faith in you again. Bless us and fill us with your joy. In your name we ask it. Amen. Yes, Lord, I do pray. I pray for us this year that we'll be a people who do walk with a sense of that, the glory cloud, the presence of God. Thank you, Spirit of God, that you no longer just hang over the tent of worship, but you've come into our hearts. You fill us, Spirit of God. And so I pray that we wouldn't be timid, but we'd be bold. I pray that we'd know your power and we'd know the love of God and we would keep entering into the inheritance that is ours. The people, glad, joyful, secure, blessed because of what Christ Jesus, our high priest, has done for us. Thank you, Lord. Amen.